Praise the Lord. Anybody worried this morning? Hope not. The Lord is on the throne. Hey, welcome, Romy. Praise the Lord. Well, it was a good trip. Uh, I got back Friday morning after going to three of the four corners of the United States. I was in California, Seattle, and New Jersey, as well as Chicago and Virginia. Uh, so, a lot of traveling, but the Lord made me a missionary kid. You know, missionary kids are, are only really happy in the airport because they have a foot on each side of the ocean. And uh, that's, I really, really love traveling and visiting the Lord's people. I was at the Moody Bible Institute Mission Week. Some of you that are thinking about going to college, think about Moody Bible Institute even as a gap year between high school and college. What a place. I felt like I was at a Bible camp. You know, most colleges that I go to and talk about missions, they don't know what the Great Commission is. So I have to start way back at the beginning and say, okay, so Jesus said, go and make disciples and we're all supposed to do it. How are you doing that? Moody students come and say, how am I supposed to obey the Great Commission? What a privilege to talk to Moody students. They cancel classes on Mission Week and they ask each of the representatives to give a seminar. So my seminar was Pure and Undefiled Religion, God's Heart for Orphans and Widows. And it was well attended. There were about 40 students there and good questions. And so praise God for places where the Bible is still the Bible, right? It's wonderful. Uh, and then we were orienting 10 new members of Action International Ministries in Seattle at the USA office. 10 people who have turned their backs on the world and are going full time into trusting God for their finances. There were seven children there, three families with children. Uh, going to places like the Middle East and the Philippines and Zambia to uh, see the kingdom advance. Praise God. So very encouraging. The Lord is doing his work. Uh, and if you want to be involved in any of that, I would love to talk to you about it. But we are working our way through 1 Peter. We're talking about elect exiles. What God says to the elect exiles. And I was thinking this morning about the election and Peter, and actually I read back to the introduction in my ESV Bible of the book of 1 Peter, and it reminded me that Peter is called the Apostle of Hope. If you need hope, this is where you find it. And it's hope in the middle of adversity, hope in suffering, hope in difficult situations. Peter gives us a reason to hope. Uh, let's just review very quickly. Again, uh, and I don't put these verses on the PowerPoint on purpose. I'd like you to open your Bibles, to have your, either your electronic copy of the Word of God or a physical copy, as well as a place to take notes. God is going to speak to you through His Word. He is speaking already, all the time. And it's our job to listen and value what He says. Take notes. might not even be anything I say. It might be something He's saying specifically to you, through his word and through the Holy Spirit, who is certainly here, reigning as we gather in his name. So, uh, let's go all the way back to chapter 1, and I just want to read a few phrases just so that we get caught up to speed here with what First Peter is saying. Uh, the book of First Peter is to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and we've talked a lot about that phrase, that we are chosen by God, but that we were strangers in the world on our way to a better country. First uh, Peter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. There's the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God causes us to be reborn by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then verse 3, the second part of verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to talk about that this morning. So that's one of the things uh, that Peter is focusing on is there is suffering, but there's life beyond it. There is resurrection to eternal, indestructible life. Uh, Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So we are saved by faith, but we're also guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we talked about being called to salvation, being called to submission. Submission is the mission. I don't know if you remember that. Submitting to government authorities, submitting to masters, even to the unjust, and submitting one to another, even in marriage, as husbands and wives. Called to salvation, called to submission, and then called to suffer. 1 Peter 2, 21. This is your calling. Christ suffered for you and has called you to follow in his steps. If you are saved and following Jesus, you should expect it to be hard. That's a hard message. But there is great reward coming in his presence, an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Well, today, we're all the way up to 1 Peter 3, 18, and I've entitled the The thoughts I've put together here, a clean conscience through Christ, a clean conscience through Christ brought safely through the waters. Let's read 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, now he's talking about Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, right? Eight people were brought safely through the water, those who were in Noah's ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. By way of introduction, I want you to picture a a boy named Reuben going to church at the tabernacle. This is Old Testament theology. But it's the precursor of what we're going to talk about this morning. Imagine you're a boy named Reuben, or maybe you're a girl named Lydia, and you're going to church with your family, and you're carrying in your arms a one-year-old lamb. Now, you've watched this lamb be born. 
Watched it nurse, watched it grow. It's perfect. It's cute. It's fuzzy. And you love it. But your dad has asked you to carry it because it's going to its death at one year old. Now, in our political climate, that is traumatic. Because as a child, you would go to the tabernacle and you would watch the priest that you trusted and know as a wise, godly man take that lamb and cut its throat and drain out its blood. Perhaps even take a branch of hyssop and sprinkle your family with it as an expiation, as an atonement for your sin before a holy God who says, without the shedding of blood, there is no cleansing from sin. You would take that lamb and skin it, take out its inside parts, and cut it up and burn it in the fire of the altar in obedience to God. The reason I tell that story is because I want us to look for a moment this morning at penal substitutionary atonement. Those are great big words that are not in our text. But verse 18 is one of the primary verses that points to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You and I cannot come into God's holy presence unless something dies in our place, and it cannot be an animal, right? The New Testament declares that those animals that they burned all through the Old Testament were a precursor, a looking forward to the perfect Lamb of God that God became... Right? Jesus is God in the flesh in order to bear the just penalty of our sin and give us access to communion with God who is holy and only can be visited through holiness. So we need to look a little bit at the context. Verse 17 that Brian explained so well last week. I was watching uh, from... Seattle last week. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So Jesus suffered as a perfect man and he calls us in his stead to suffer. He was the suffering servant and we follow him. Now look at uh, chapter 4 verse 1 that we'll move to next week. It says, since therefore, so pointing back to this chapter, this, this passage, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 12 of chapter 4 says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So just as we start talking about substitutionary atonement, the problem that people see with it is that if Jesus was my substitute and now I get, get to live his life without suffering the consequences of my sin, past, 
future, past, present, and future, doesn't that give me a license to sin? If God has already paid for my future sins, how does that motivate me to a holy life? That's a, a good question. It's a good uh, critique of a, of a theological position. I think Peter answers it very well by saying you are called in Christ's footsteps to suffer as well. But let's look quickly at what this means. Uh, I read quite a bit this week about it. And I, I think first we need to understand that the atonement of God is a mystery. There is no way we can answer all the questions or make it foolproof and understandable, especially to those who are in the dark. I witnessed to a Muslim woman on the plane one time, and she said, I just don't get it. How could the blood of Jesus apply to me? That was 2,000 years ago. What does it have to do with me? That just doesn't make sense to me. And I couldn't explain it in a way that she agreed with and accepted. Because it is truly a matter of faith. God gives you grace to believe that you are sinful in his presence, and Jesus covers that. J.I. Packer talks about this when he says, If we bear in mind that all the knowledge we can have of the atonement is a mystery about which we can only think and speak by means of models, and which remain a mystery when all is said and done, it will keep us from rationalistic pitfalls and thus help our progress considerably. Think about this as a mystery. That's why Peter says it's like the ark, because he's using a model. He's saying, if you understand baptism like the flood and the church like the ark, you'll understand it a little more. But you can't understand everything. Luther called it a wonderful exchange. Listen to Martin Luther. He's the one that began this discussion in the Reformation. This is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it, and he has taken our evil upon himself that he might deliver us from them. John Calvin said the word propitiation, in Greek it's hilasmos, has great weight for God in a way that cannot be put into words. It's a mystery. At the very time when he loved us, he was hostile to us until he was reconciled in Christ. God loved us when we were yet sinners, offending him. And so substitutionary penal atonement, and penal has to do with the penalty, so that there's a just penalty for our sin, has four insights. And I will send you these on the WhatsApp group this week. If you're on the members list of the WhatsApp group, these will be there, along with the article from which I took them. Uh, it's from a, a lecture that J.I. Packer gave at Cambridge University. Four insights. Number one, God is holy and so must administer just retribution to sin. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The wages of sin is always death. If that's not true, God is not holy. That's number one. It's about God. God's holiness will be upheld. God is a consuming fire. Think about the sun. What would happen to us if we went to live in the sun? We would not survive it. 
Sinners cannot survive the holiness of God unless they are made holy. And we can only do that by God's initiative. So that comes to the second insight, which is about us. Human beings are conceived in sin, lost, and justly condemned to the second death along with the devil and his angels. We are unable to save ourselves. Because we are sinful, you were born a sinner. You, sin, you are sinful not because you sin. You sin because you're sinful. We're lost, unable to, to have fellowship with God because we are in sin as sons and daughters of Adam. See, Adam and Eve welcomed Satan into the garden and themselves into Satan's realm so that like Satan himself, we are destined on planet Earth for eternal judgment. And that is just and holy and good. But praise God, there are more insights. Number three is about Jesus. So number one was God's holiness. Number two is man's sin. Number three, Jesus, the God-man, took our place under judgment and received in his personal experience all the dimensions of the death that was our sentence, laying the foundation for our pardon and immunity. See, that's the miracle. We are immune. There is no more punishment. All the punishment was dumped on God through Christ. He took the penalty of my sin, past, present, and future, and that's why we're here to praise him. That's what verse 18 says, right? So, so 1 Peter 3.18 is where we are. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There's one more insight, and I hope you know what it is. That's our response. Jesus laid the foundation, but it's not efficacious for everybody. It doesn't have an effect until grace awakens us to our need and his power to save us. And we accept him. We believe in him. We trust him and repent. So the fourth insight is faith looks outside ourselves to Christ. Remember Jesus said, as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be raised up. Moses put up that serpent so that people bit by the fatal serpent could look and be saved. All they did was turn and look to the serpent. And that's how we are saved. We look to Jesus. We turn outside ourselves. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by coming to church, by praying more. We are saved because we trust the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Let me finish reading this fourth insight. Faith looks out ourselves to Christ, crucified and risen as the only ground of forgiveness and hope for the future. Faith sees that the just retribution required by God's holiness has already operated in Christ so that all our sins, past, present, and even future have been covered by Calvary. That's amazing. We are made the righteousness of God because Jesus became sin for us and died with it. John Bunyan writes Pilgrim's Progress, and in it, 
Pilgrim says, If thou my pardon hast secured, and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First from my bleeding surety's hand, and then again from mine. There is no more consequence of sin. Because all of it fell on Jesus. That's why he said it is finished. It's finished. I've paid it. So we are set free from the consequence. So that we can follow him. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24? Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, Paul knew this danger of the substitution. He said, should I go on sinning that grace may abound? Of course not. Reckon yourself dead to sin. That's our constant choice. Living the life that Jesus purchased for us. Are you free to sin? You're free. But if you sin, you forfeit that freedom and you start wrapping those chains around your hands again by choice. His substitution makes us free from the result of our sin and free to choose Him, even if it means suffering. A couple of writings from Paul will illuminate this before we move on to verse 19. 2 Corinthians 5 20 and 21. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's why Jesus saved us. So that we would be His righteousness, light and salt in the earth, and not live for ourselves anymore but for him. Ephesians 4 says the same thing. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And there we move to verse 19. So Jesus suffered once for sin. It's done. The righteous for the unrighteous. He died with our sin. And then through resurrection, we are raised with him into a new life. Through the Spirit, it said. So in the flesh, God became a body so that he could die. His body was killed. His spirit remained eternally alive. Indestructible life, Hebrews says. And he went... Down into hell. Now, we don't understand everything that happened on Saturday. Uh, the church has called it Hallelujah Saturday, right? The Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. We'll find out when we get to heaven. I hope we have a, a movie night and get to watch Jesus march into hell and blow the gates of death right off. But this verse gives us a little bit of a picture in which the Spirit, he went and proclaimed, this is verse 19, 1 Peter 3, 19. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through 
water. Now that's a very strange statement. Some commentators think that Jesus actually went back in history, which for someone who's resurrected, there's no meaning about back and forward. Time is different. The dimension of time is ended. So Jesus can invade the timeline wherever he chooses. I personally think he actually went into Sheol, which is what the Hebrews called the place of the dead. When you're dead, you go into a a land of the dead. David speaks about this as well. Because there is no redemption yet. The Lamb of God has not been given and offered. So Jesus went to preach to those people this very thing I'm preaching to you this morning in a very halting way, that the door has been opened, that the price has been paid, that they can have fellowship with God again. I sincerely believe that, and I think Ephesians 4 gives testimony to that, that he descended to the very lowest place and ascended to the highest place, leading captives in his train as a victorious king, saying, come on, follow me. Now let's go to heaven. Let's go into the heavenly places. And that's why he said to that thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He was going down into the place of the dead, and he was leading out those who would accept him. That's my theory. You may have a different idea. But what does this have to do with us? Verse 21 tells us, 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism which corresponds to this, now this is referring to the flood, right? The flood and the ark, now saves you. And then he quickly goes to, not as removal of dirt from the body. So it's not the physical water that saves you. It's not by going down into some physical water. It's not about physical dirt. What is it about? But an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's the washing away of your guilt in Christ. And in his payment of the penalty of your sin through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here we move from the death of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world to the indestructible eternal life of Jesus. And so as Paul says, if you have been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death. And like he was raised to eternal life, you too with him have been raised to live a new life, a life in which you no longer want to sin, a life in which you, you are free to give yourself freely for the consequences of sin, even if you didn't sin. So Jesus wants to use us, Paul says, even to fill up in our body what is lacking of the sufferings of Christ. That means suffering unjustly, like Peter has already taught us, because that's what Christ did. You are part of his body. If you've been baptized into him, you've become part of him. And your calling is to do his work, to be his presence, to be even his face that is smacked on one side and turned to the other side, because that's whom you follow. Baptism takes us into him, gives us a good conscience, a clean conscience, and an indestructible life through his resurrection. My friend, is that the life you're living? Are you living an indestructible life? Do you live as though your life has no end? Your conscience is clean, even though you're convicted more and more deeply of your sin and your need for forgiveness. Jesus gives you a greater and greater joy that despite your need, he has paid the price and has purchased you for his use 
in the world. Just let me stop here and say again that the first Sunday of December, we're planning a baptism, a joint baptism with Fellowship Church. And if you have made a decision for Christ and would like to seal that in baptism, I would love to know. We'd love to have more people enjoy that, that fellowship of Christ and with his church on, I believe it's the 3rd of December, first Sunday in December. Verse 22, as we turn toward the application. Who has gone into heaven, so this is Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Philippians 2 says Jesus became obedient, submitted himself to the point of dying on the cross, to the lowest place possible, down into hell, as the consequence of our sin drove him into death and hell. And then out of that lowest place, his name was lifted to the very highest place so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the devil bends his knee to Jesus and nobody is above his authority. Even powers and principalities have been subjected to him. Why does Peter tell us this now? Because he wants you and me to remember in our suffering that we are seated with him too. That's our position. If you've been baptized into Jesus, you have taken advantage of his death. You have the benefit of his payment for your sin. And now you are seated with him in heavenly places. Peter's writing this from a, a Roman dungeon where it looks like he's totally submitted. He's at the very lowest place too. But he's reminding the suffering followers of the suffering servant that they are seated with Christ at the very highest place in the universe and that every authority has been subjected under the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's all been subjected to him. There is nothing that should make us concerned. I think that's a very worthy message on election day. Many of us are concerned about the result of this election. It's all under the authority of him who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And we are seated with him. So let's interpret this. We've looked at what it says. We've tried to analyze some of the words of Peter's message to us, especially as they pertain to our atonement. I think there's four key parts of this. The first three are more preliminaries and the fourth is what we should do about it. Number one, Jesus wants to bring us to God. He wants to bring us into fellowship with His Father, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are eternally in fellowship with themselves, Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, satisfied, joyful, loving for eternity past into eternity present, and Jesus wants to bring us that way. Where does this come from? Verse 18. In order to bring us to God. Right? I'm coming back to it. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that He became a baby, a man, and died in our place so that we could return to fellowship with Him. I think this is so key to remember when things are hard. When you're in suffering, remember that the whole point is that you might have fellowship with Him. 
Ephesians 3 says, Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. My friend, if you're going through hard times and things are hitting the fan, the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, which are undeserved, but have great effect, is the way you know him, is one of the primary ways that we know him. Knowing that there is hope against all hope, like Romans says about Paul. Jesus is bringing us into fellowship with God, including in our suffering through the cross and the resurrection. The second interpretation we can extract out of this is that we are in need. We are sinful and condemned to eternal wrath without Jesus' payment. The way we know this is by looking at the cross. If there were any other way, if there is another religion that takes you to God, if there's anything else that could make you holy, why in the world would God subject his only son to what he went through? God is saying, I am holy and I love you. That's what the cross says. I am holy and I love you. And that's what I want to show you. Not just with a band-aid over the sin, but with all of creation. This plan was established before God made the world. He said, I will show my creatures how deep my grace and love will, grow, will go. And that convicts me of my need. I am desperately in need of his grace more and more and more. And even as we're saved, the light begins to shine in the corners and we realize I am in need of his grace to become like him more every day. We are sinful. Without him, we are in, condemned to eternal life, to eternal wrath. With him, we have eternal life like Noah. So just like Noah, we are called to come into the open door through Jesus, he said, I'm the door. Come in. Be safe. Be saved from the coming wrath of God. So Peter is using this as an example, as a model, like Packer said. We can be safe from God's wrath in Christ. My friend, if you have not dedicated your life, if you have not turned over your sinful rags to him and said, Lord, clothe me in your righteousness. I want to live your life because you died my death. Do it this morning. There is no other place to be safe. Run to the cross. Run to the open door like the door of the ark before it starts to rain. Because next time, it's not going to be water. It's going to be fire. There's fire coming. Matthew 25 says when Jesus comes with his holy angels and fire of judgment. 2 Peter 3 says the elements will be melted. All of this is going to be burned in judgment and purified for God's holy purpose. And only those who are in Christ will be fireproof. See, then we can live in the sun. S-O-N. Because he has made us safe through his resurrection and just sacrifice. So what do we need to do? Number four, repenting and trusting Christ's sufficient atonement, being baptized into his body, cleanses the conscience. That's where we get a clean conscience and seats us with him at God the Father's right hand over all authority in heaven and in earth. 
I was walking through the favela one day with some kids that I was visiting their family, and I stepped on an old Macumba sacrifice. You know how they stay there for a long time, and you can see kind of the chicken feathers stuck to the pavement. And I stepped right on it. And the girl walking next to me said, Tio, você pisou. I had to respect her respect for the power of Satan. I'm glad she believed that. But I also looked right at her with all the confidence and peace that I actually had in my heart and said, it doesn't matter. I'm in Jesus. Darkness has no power over light. Lies have no power over truth. If you are in Christ, the flood only lifts you up. You cannot be judged with the world through fire. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're walking with Jesus in the fire, you won't even smell like smoke. Be hidden in Christ and go through the fire with confidence and joy, even if it's the suffering of this life. That's what Peter's saying. If you're in Christ, you're in the ark, and nothing can make you afraid. My friend, if you're still trying to be good enough to go to heaven, you've made a mockery of Jesus because His sacrifice is sufficient. He said it is finished. There is no more payment needed. God doesn't punish you for your sin. He gives you the just consequences of it to teach you that you're sacrificing the freedom that He bought by your sin. Confess, repent, Trust His sufficient sacrifice and live His life in the world. I read 2 Timothy chapter 1 this week and it just reminded me of so many of these things. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, praise God, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. There it is. This is the last Sunday of the month. Some of us will be going out to witness this afternoon together with faith over fear. If you've never done that, I challenge you to do it. Just do it once. Because your life is not your own. It's been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. And if you have sat, if you have repented and entered into him, then you through the cross are in the church which is safe through the judgment that the world will suffer and is suffering more and more and more. Let's pray together. I hope you're aware of your need of a just sacrifice, a worthy, perfect lamb, God has taken our place on that cross. And he has invited us into his indestructible life through the resurrection. Run more and more constantly into that open door, abandoning your sin. 
and living the righteousness that he bought for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you not only for doing it, but for revealing it to us by your Spirit. Thank you for the conviction of our sin. Thank you for loving us all the way to the end. Now challenge us not to live the life you've purchased for our own pleasure, but for your glory. In Jesus' name.